Well, yes, thank you for uh, all that singing, lifting our minds and our voices to the Lord. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn, as we do every Sunday, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. We'll eventually look at a passage from Mark chapter 5, but before we do that, let's do what we usually do. Let's do a quick review of some of what we've studied to this point. Now, in the past four weeks, we have looked at individual paragraphs from each of the first four chapters. And then at the end of each Sunday, we gave each chapter a name, something that we could hang on to, that we could remember to tell the story of the Gospel of Mark someday when we're all done here. So, just a quick review, we named chapter one, Come Follow Me. And I I don't want to remind us of this every week, but in your Bibles, next to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, I would encourage you to write this in your Bible so you have it. It's come, follow me. In chapter 1, Jesus invited his first disciples to do what? To come and follow him. Turn the page, go to Mark chapter 2. We named Mark chapter 2, the outside always reflects the inside. Mark chapter 2, we talked about a man who was paralyzed. Jesus healed the man as well as forgiving him of his sin. He got up and walked. And the reason that Jesus said to him, get up and walk, is because he wanted everyone in the city of Capernaum to know that when Jesus changes us on the inside, it makes a difference how we live and act on the outside. I would guess most of us know people who, well, they claim to know Jesus as their Savior. But my question is, where's the evidence on the outside? Because the only tangible evidence that salvation has ever taken place is a changed life. So Mark chapter 2, the outside always reflects the inside. We name chapter 3, having a heart for people who need Jesus. In chapter 3, Jesus heals a man again. This time he does it on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are all upset. The Pharisees seemed to be more concerned about people who were disobeying the man-made rules of what they determined the Sabbath was for. They're more concerned about people obeying or disobeying, whatever way you want to look at it, their man-made rules, than they seem to be concerned about helping other people. So we named chapter 3, did I put that down here? Having a heart for people who need Jesus. Chapter 4 was our sermon from last Sunday, everyone does not go to heaven. In chapter 4, as Jesus tells us the parable of the four soils, he reminds us that everyone is not going to heaven. Now, let's turn the page. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. And I'm going to read the first 20 verses. It's a little bigger paragraph this Sunday than most, but I'm going to read the first 20 verses, and I would encourage you to either follow along in your Bible, or I'm quite sure it's going to show up here on the screen. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, go ahead and underline the word immediately. That's the, one of the key words in the Gospel of Mark. As when, and when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. 
And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure, some translations change that word to beg, I adjure, I beg you by God. Underline that word, beg or adjure, whatever your Bible has. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 10, and he begged him, go ahead and underline the word begged. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, underline the word begged, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg, underline that word beg, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged, underline the word begged, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I grew up in a small town in southwest Minnesota. The name of the metro area is Round Lake. I googled it this last week. Population as of last week was it was a maximum 374 people. When I lived there 100 years ago, it was just above 400. So they're, they're experiencing a decline over there in Round Lake, Minnesota. But you know, the whole time I lived there, I loved every day of living in that town of 400 people, and I never knew there was anything different. That was home. When I was 10 or 12 years old, my brother and I developed a new habit well, we needed something to do in that town of 374 people. So my brother and I and some of our friends, we began to ride our bikes out into the country. Everything was gravel road. We didn't need, there was one paved street in the whole town. That was the county highway that went through. Everything was gravel. So riding out into the country on the gravel was just like riding in town. I mean, it was, but at 10 or 12 years old, we started riding our bikes well, our goal was to ride to a certain location out there, a mile and a half from town. We were going to ride to the cemetery. We were 10 or 12 years old, and we were riding to the cemetery. And as far as I can remember, we never actually went inside the cemetery. But after a few times of trying, we eventually got all the way out to the cemetery. I remember, it's funny how I can't remember what we did yesterday. 
But I can remember the first time we tried to ride that mile and a half to the cemetery. We got up, we rode up on this, this gravel hill, and we were probably still a half a mile from the cemetery. But on that hill, you could see the tent cemetery. And we stopped right there. Because that's as close as we wanted to get that first time. It took us probably half a dozen times before we actually rode our bikes all the way to the cemetery. You have to imagine, I was 10 years old. There's just something about a cemetery. And when you're 10 years old, I don't even under, you know, it just, it's just strange. And we're not going in there, okay? So we kept a safe distance. Now, I have to tell you this. Whenever I read this story in Mark chapter 5, about the man who lived in the cemetery. In your Bible, it says in verse 3, he lived among the tombs. Whenever I read this story from Mark chapter 5, I think about those bicycle trips. And I cannot imagine how we would have responded as 10 and 12-year-old kids of seeing someone peeking out behind a headstone or running naked between the headstones, it tells us later that he was clothed, so that must mean that he was not clothed originally. Or what would it have been like when you're 10 years old to look in the cemetery and you see a little, a little tent and some guy sticking his head out, like he's living there? Why, it would have scared us half to death. And it would have scared you half to death, too, if you were 10 years old with us on that bike trip. This passage in Mark chapter 5 describes one of those, we need a word for this. This passage in Mark 5 describes for us one of those mysterious miracles. How about that? Let's take that. It describes for us one of those mysterious miracles which the Gospels record for us multiple times. The driving out of a demon. But of the three times that this same story appears in, I think it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's, it's in all three of those, this story in Mark chapter in Mark 5 is the longest, and it gives us the most details about what's happening. So this morning, as we work our way through this story, I want to divide this, these 20 verses into three smaller pieces. Number one, demon possession is a real thing. Okay, let's understand that it's not a joke. It's not a figment of someone's imagination. It's, it was a real thing at the time of Jesus, and it's a real thing yet today. The idea that a that demon possession is nothing more than a fantasy, that idea is completely false. The idea of a demon inhabiting someone's body is a very real possibility. And for all of the people you know and for all of the people I know who think that demon possession is some sort of a joke, we need to somehow encourage them to read this story in Mark chapter 5. Well, you and I need to be on guard in all matters relating to the devil. Now, there are many things about demonic possession that we don't understand. At least there's many things about demonic possession that I don't understand, and I can't even explain them. But that does not mean we should not believe it. Of all these trips that I make to the other side of the world, one place that I go regularly teaching and training pastors is the Philippines. I can tell you this, in the Philippines, people have never seen snow, okay? They have three temperatures there, hot, hotter, and hottest. And even on their coldest day of the year, you and I would still say it's hot, 
They've never seen snow. But that doesn't mean snow doesn't exist. Right? Many people refuse to believe in demonic possession simply because they've never seen a situation themselves. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Satan would love to have people everywhere believe that he doesn't exist and that he has no power. But he does exist and he does have power. 20 years ago. Now, it might have, you know, I don't have the date. Maybe it was 25 years ago. A guy from our church called me up and wanted to make an appointment. He wanted to come to my office and he had something he wanted to talk about. As he sat in my office, he began telling me this, this strange story. It was, I had never heard anything like this. What he was telling me was just bizarre. And I can tell you, but I'm not going to. And if you stop me after church and say, what was he talking? No, I'm not going to tell you that either. What he was telling in that story, I've never been able to forget that story. But all of a sudden, he stopped talking. And there was another voice in the room. And to this day, I believe that he was demon-possessed and that that demon was inside his body and the demon was now talking to me. Now, you have to understand that, I mean, it was strange. I, I've, I, it isn't like I'm going to tell you I've had this experience 25 times. That is the only time I ever experienced this. My admin assistant had gone for lunch or coffee or something after the gentleman arrived in the office. She left for coffee before he left the office. And when she got back, the first thing she said to me was, who is that third person in the room? Because she could hear the demon speaking through the wall out into the, where her desk was. So let's understand this. Demon possession, number one, is a real thing. Number two, Satan is mean and powerful, and he hates everything that's good. The evidence of just how mean and how cruel Satan is can be found in the fact that Satan's, Satan's demons have attacked and entered the body of this man in Mark chapter 5. And since this man now has nowhere to live, he lives in the cemetery. I can't imagine being in a situation that would be much worse than being forced to live in a cemetery. It says in verse 3, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And it's this exactly this situation that Satan would like to have all of us. That's what he wants for us. He would rejoice if he could somehow put each of us in that kind of a situation. Living like the man did in Mark chapter 5 gives us just a glimpse. And I'm here to tell you, friends, it is a small glimpse of what life in hell will really be like. For everyone who rejects faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. In the first century in the Roman Empire, a legion in the Roman army 
was the word they used to describe 1,000 soldiers. They had companies and battalions, and eventually a legion was 1,000 soldiers. So let's just think about this. You and I today, we have no idea, none, of the actual number of demons that Satan has at his disposal. So whether we are at home or whether we're at church on Sunday morning, there is no reason to believe that Satan is not out prowling around right now, always near us, even when we're not aware of the situation. Take your Bibles or look on the screen. Let's look at 1 Peter 5.8. Now before we read this verse, let's remind ourselves, Peter is writing to Christians. He's not sending this letter over to this geographic area to a bunch of non-Christians hoping that they'll read this. No, if you go back and read verses 1, 2, and 3 in chapter 1, he is writing to Christians. And this is what he says to those Christians. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And by the way, that word prowls in the Greek New Testament is present tense. It means that even as Peter is writing these words, he understands that Satan, at that moment, is prowling around seeking whom he can devour. Look at verse 12. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Even though the demons had already possessed the body of this man living in the cemetery, they're not done. They know Jesus is going to cast them out of this man. They want to do even more damage, so they ask to be thrown into or put into or placed into these hogs. They ask permission to harm the innocent farm animals who were feeding nearby. Number one, demons are alive today. Number two, Satan is mean and powerful and he hates everything that's good. Let's look at point number three. God has authority over Satan. Verse 8, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And in verse 13, And the demons came out. As numerous as those demons were, Satan was confronted by Jesus, and Jesus has more authority than the demons. We live in a world, you know, I mean, just think about this morning, as Frank asked for that prayer request for those, those men and women in West Virginia. We live in a world of pain and sadness and sorrow and difficulties. And, and right now, while we're gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ, I mean, we are here in a, in a well-lit room. The temperature's very comfortable. We've got nice, soft chairs to sit on. There are millions upon millions upon millions of people outside these doors scattered all across this country and around the world, who are just hanging on to life by a thread. You could say that we have it pretty easy right here in Sioux Falls at the moment, and yet there's a part of us that says, but even in the midst of that easiness, we understand we still live in a world of pain and sadness and difficulties. Now, add to that reality the awful thought that Satan and his demons are out there prowling around at this moment trying to do us harm. It would be devastating if not for the fact, if not for the truth, that God has absolute authority over Satan and he cannot harm us. 
It says in, let me give you a couple verses, Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Psalm 138, 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he triumphed over Satan. And he will someday triumph over Satan completely when Jesus comes back and Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit. It says in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Human nature has not changed much since Jesus walked the earth. We still sin, and we still struggle with sin every day. And Satan is still out there prowling around looking for people whose lives he can destroy. So let's understand this. Just because we live in the 21st century and not the 1st century, it doesn't mean that demonic activity and demonic possession cannot and does not happen. It's happening around us all the time in more ways than we will ever realize. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no way we could ever be demon-possessed. However, we can be strongly influenced by demonic activity. Even though as Christians, we're protected from demonic possession. Let me read a short paragraph from a pastor on the West Coast, John MacArthur, who has a church near Los Angeles. He says this, There is no clear example in the Bible where a demon ever inhabited or invaded a true believer. Never in the New Testament epistles are believers warned about the possibility of being inhabited by demons. Neither do we see anyone rebuking, binding, or casting demons out of a true believer. The epistles never instruct believers to cast out demons, whether from a believer or an unbeliever. Jesus and the apostles were the only ones who cast out demons, and in every instance, the demon-possessed people were unbelievers. So even though, now let's just process this, even though as believers we are protected by the blood of Jesus against demonic possession, that does not mean that we are completely protected from demonic influences all around us. I read this paragraph last week in one of my study Bibles. It, had to, it was in the introduction to Ephesians, which talks about spiritual warfare. And just the one sentence, the fundamental struggle of believers, that's you and I, I'm assuming that you have repented of your sin and you have faith in Jesus. The fundamental struggle of believers is not against other people. Our fight is with the spiritual forces. It says in Ephesians 6, beginning in 10, finally be strong in the Lord. Now remember again, same thing as back in 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing to Christians. It'd be easy to just read through this and think he's talking about not, no, he, he's not talking about non-Christians, he's talking about Christians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For you and I here at Cross Point, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Around the world today, there are Christians experiencing a variety of kinds of spiritual warfare. Sometimes it's extraordinary. Other times that spiritual warfare presents itself in, in the kind of things that we just, here in America, we just sort of accept and, you know, things like depression and hopelessness and circumstances. Well, I've tried over the years, I don't want to give Satan credit for anything. But I know he's out there trying to destroy our lives. He's out there trying to destroy marriages. He's out there trying to destroy Christians' lives. And he's out there trying to destroy Christian churches. We need to recognize that Satan is alive and well. And he wants us to do harm. Now let me begin closing by saying this. I believe that every person here this morning needs to take a spiritual inventory from time to time. We just need to, not publicly, but privately, each of us, needs to go through a list of things. How are we doing when it comes to building up our personal defenses against Satan? Now, we don't need to look around the room and say, well, I'm doing better than that person. No, I don't, I don't care if you're doing better than everybody in the room. My question is, how are you doing with your relationship with Jesus? And are you building up a defense system, or are you ready to stumble and fall? We need to stop. If you're taking notes, that's spelled S-T-O-P. We need to stop some of our activities. And we need to think about some of the people who we are allowing to influence our lives. There are people all around us who are involved in demonic activities that provide entry points for Satan to do his work. We need to be intentional. If you've still got the Ouija board in that cardboard box in the back closet, you need to get that out of your house and burn it this afternoon. It's not a game. It's not a cute little toy. Get rid of it. We need to get rid of our video games with the demonic characters that if you've got them in your house and you think, well, these are nice little things, the grandkids come over, they think, no. Hit that stuff with a hammer and throw it in the garbage. We need to throw our way our astrology books. Some of us are probably in the habit of every morning getting up and reading our horoscope. Forget it. We're not worshiping the stars. You're just allowing an entry point. You will never be possessed if you have faith in Christ. You will never be demon-possessed but you can be strongly influenced by playing with that stuff. It's no joke. We need to stop going to palm readers and burn the tarot cards. We need to stay away from movies about the occult. And if we're in the habit of doing that, we need to ask God to forgive us of that. Satan will use those things to mess you up. We need to be intentional, on the other hand, about spending time reading and studying God's Word. We need to be intentional about spending time in prayer. We need to be committed to faithful attendance in church and fellowship with other believers. James 4, 7, and 8 says, Submit yourselves before, therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When James writes this letter, I can just see somebody raising their hand. What if we don't resist the devil? Well, you got problems. If you're going to allow all these occultish 
demonic things to impact your life, you are going to suffer the consequences. It won't impact your eternity, but it can mess you up big time here on the earth. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The word resist in verse 7 and 8 are both action words. If we think about somehow how we can just ignore all the satanic activity around us without building up our own personal spiritual defenses. Let me say that again. If you somehow think that you can survive in this world by just ignoring that demonic activity without building up your own spiritual defenses, you're going to end up defeated. It doesn't work that way. But let me close with this. The last verse in John 16 is still true. It was true when John said it, and it's still true today. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then John says, in the world you will have trouble, but he's quoting Jesus, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's true. In the end we win. In fact, in one of my Bibles, I wrote that right next to that verse. In the end we win with an exclamation point. But in the meantime... Satan is out to destroy us. He's out to destroy every one of us. Number one, demon possession is real. Number two, Satan is mean and powerful and he hates everything that's good. He doesn't just hate some things. He hates everything that's good. And Crosspoint Church is on that list. Okay? Number three, hallelujah, God has authority over Satan. The chapter title for Mark chapter 5 is this. Demonic activity is a real thing. Your assignment for next week, let's read Mark chapter 6. Come prepared for a lesson from God's Word. We're going to invite the ushers to come, and as they come to take this morning's offering, let's have a word of prayer. God, we ask that you would just take these words that are printed on these pages. Remind us, God, that you have overcome all of Satan and all the dark things that he wants to promote. And God, when we are in a right relationship with you, we are completely protected. But Lord, our prayer is for those people who, well, first of all, it's for those people who just think they're Christians and they aren't. And then it's for all of us who who struggle with allowing these entry points to influence our life. Lord, help us to make wise decisions, hard decisions sometimes. We thank you, Lord, for this offering we're about to take. We thank you for each gift and each giver. We ask that uh, leaders here at Crosspoint would be good stewards of all that's entrusted into their care. So we thank you for this offering in Jesus' name. Amen.